Hey ho, tutor minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 25 of our podcast, Quarter of a Century. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. If you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order. We've had such a great time researching it and working on it, and especially bringing it to you. The Tutor Time Machine podcast now has thousands of listeners all over the world, so we just want to thank you and say how brilliant you are. And if you're enjoying the podcast, can you please show your support and, you know, buy me a coffee. No, buy me a coffee. Type buy me a coffee as one word and tutor time machine into your favorite search engine. And you'll go to the buymeacoffee.com page where you can show your support. Or click the shop now button at the top of the tutor time machine Facebook page and zip You'll be transported to buy me a coffee. The more cups of coffee you buy, the more support you show. So juice us up. In our last episode, Constance made another visit to the Tower of London to the very, very grumpy Countess of Lennox. <laughs> then she had to attend a big blowout party where Celia hoped to impress the Queen. Now we're going to the Arundel Inn. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jessie. Chapter 25. The Arundel Inn, in which Philomena bids her blackjack stay, and Cecilia bids her Margrave go. Philomena's was a dainty ear, blackjack thought, translucent as a mouse's, with a small lobe, pierced and pearled. He had news to give her. She loved news, and he was always in the market for a good morsel. He was loath to admit how he always pumped his fellows for gossip that would bring her a laugh. But tonight he had come away with very different information, information involving the husband of that well-made Swedish princess. The Margrave of Baden-Baden was planning to leave England, sail home and defend his borders. He was asking for English soldiers to join him abroad, guaranteeing handsome pay. Blackjack teased Philomena, stressing what an enticing offer it was, keeping a close watch on her. Would her mouth turn down at the thought of his leaving London? Probably not. He wished she would face him with the stricken expression that would accurately reflect the turmoil inside her. But she was quiet. I have always desired to see Baden-Baden, he baited her. So you are bent on going? He listened closely. Could he not hear her heart of hearts longing, crying out to him? Do you wish me to? You are a soldier, Blackjack, a man of war. It is only natural that you would join a fight sooner or later. I will not play indifference. I would rather it were later. And do you wish the soldier Nash to come back sooner or later? Later, sir. In truth, I am in no hurry to marry. He swilled his beer. Such words were not entirely satisfying. Could she not at least flush and look away with a wounded air? Grasp his hand, brush her lips against his palm? She was not as free with him as he would like. He would like confessions in bed, confessions of worries and thoughts. But she would not. And why not? Had she ever had such a sympathetic lover? He doubted it. And he brought insight to all problems, even those of women. He remembered a lovely girl. Well, not her name. What was it? He could not remember. But her presence, that he remembered. The girl had been in an argument with her sister. What had it been about? The timing of a wedding? Had he not solved the problem and shown sympathy at the girl's slight? 
He could solve Philomena's vexations if she would but give him leave. He looked about him. It was this inn, somehow, that held Philomena. The inn, and her mother's illness, and what he was sure were papist sympathies. He glanced up to see Philomena's eye steady on him. Such a face. It held worry. But could she not tell him, at the very least, could she not beg him to stay and keep her bed warm? Shall I accept the Margrave's offer, then? Blackjack. Of course I do not want you to go. But do you wish it? Is it truly your desire? I know not, he admitted. Philomena might be coy, but his was an honest nature. The Margrave promises the world, but I have also heard that he has overspent himself and owes money. He cannot pay the soldiers he brought from his own country. I warrant Englishmen will go unpaid as well. I thought Baden Baden your heart's desire. Is that not glory enough? Salty girl. I concede, then. It is true. If there is only glory, I will fight for the Queen, not risk my life and my purse for a foreigner. This Swedish pair were alike, Philomena thought. The princess owed an ever-increasing debt at the inn. Royals took everything on credit, Philomena knew, and it should be no surprise that Cecilia did not pay up. Though Blackjack made a good point about risking one's purse, Philomena could see that the Swedish lady's presence at the inn was good for business. Whether lovers or merchants, many paying men followed in Cecilia's wake. The princess would be presented with yet another bill, but no matter the outcome, it was a boon to have her adorning the inn. Oh, Philomena saw that Blackjack was huffy, because for a single moment her attention had wandered. Dearest sir, she smiled, I have business upstairs, and I so hate to be alone. Will you join me? Blackjack wanted to say no, that he would rather sojourn downstairs and drink with his fellows. In truth, he would much rather go with her, and he was sure that any of his fellows would. Extending his arm, he helped Philomena rise, liking to offer her aid that she did not need. Princess Cecilia made her way up the steps of the Arundel Inn, nearing her final destination. She recognized Mistress Arundel preceding her with a friend who, even from the back, looked a handsome piece. His delectable form ascended the stairs. She shielded her face as he took a quick glance back. She would make it to her assignation, and no one, not even the hostess of the inn, must know. How clever she had been to take these rooms. What a perfect place for this rendezvous. Her adventure had begun hours ago. Full to the brim of resourcefulness, she executed the perfect escape from Bedford House, deceiving every member of her retinue, even her sweetmeat of a husband, by acting crapulous and retiring alone then lowering herself out of the window with a sheet anchored to the bed. Wrapped in her black cloak, she was a dark zephyr. Blowing silently through the night, she flew to meet Captain Hawkins at the dock and procure the goods. And now, having made her way to Cheapside, she slipped into the Arundel Inn, through the back like a common thief. It made her giddy to think of it. She looked this way and that before she darted into the chamber. Master d'Illinois stood awkwardly in the middle of the room. At his feet sat a young boy with light hair and enormous eyes. This must be the assistant. Master d'Illinois hovered, then threw himself on the ground before her, the boy following his master. She commanded them to rise, locked her eyes on them, and flung back her hood. Princess, you must allow me to assist you. Master d'Illinois was tentative as he lifted the cloak from her shoulders. And my key? He returned it with a little bow, his hand shaking. You are pale, sir. 
Do you fear detection? Cecilia asked him. Yes, madam. And you fear spies? There are spies. The man was not of her spiny strength. He was a trusting soul who apprehended the world through the eyes of an infant, an infant with a very fine mind. But she would not spare him the truth. Of course there are spies. Cecil House is a stone's throw from where I reside. It is natural that Madame Mildred has enlisted her people to spy on me, but courage, outwitting the lady will be my charge. You must think only of making the elixir. Now, so you will not be blinded, you must turn as I produce the goods. Master Delanoy did not understand her. She could see from his dazed look, but with his back to her, he retreated to a corner. Beneath her skirts, elegant flasks hung. It had taken all of the grace that she had once used merely to dance la volta to carry them through the streets of London. How lithely she had shifted her body, avoiding even a single clink that might reveal her cargo. Untying the beakers carefully from her belt, she lined them across a small table. Your grace, Master Delanoy stammered, these are, 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 are perfect. I have not seen such glass in my life. Some do not believe that the purity of the glass is to be considered, but the transformation cannot be successful without beakers of this quality. Cecilia drew out the real prizes tucked inside her bodice, her breasts a perfect pillow to a pair of flasks, one that held sulphite and the other quicksilver. She smiled at his rapture. What a turn of luck it had been for him to fall in with a vasa. She admired the careful way he and his assistant packed the precious items into a well-lined traveling box. Then they carefully lowered it into a basket of clean linens that would be delivered to his laboratory. No one would know the secret cargo hid beneath. Bowing and singing her praises, Delanois went away, and after a fitting time, she too stole out into the street. Perched in a wherry, Cecilia smiled to herself that the surly waterman would never suspect his passenger was Sweden's princess. She giggled at his rude curses. When, disembarking, she rocked the boat and the wake sprayed his shoes. Bedford House was oddly dead. There was no light, no laughter. How much joy was absent when she was. She pitied her household. Believing she was unwell, they had no heart for festivities and had all retired. She walked through the rooms amid the snores and rustles of sleeping servants, recounting some of the best moments the room had experienced since her sojourn at Bedford House. Oh, stairs, she said as she walked up. How we loved you when we rode on our shields for sport. Bumpity bump. Her door was ajar. Who might her guest be, she wondered. Was it Sir Robert Dudley after all? There in the light was her own dear Margrave. How her heart leapt up. Oh, he was holding the sheet she had tied to the bed and his face was puffy. His mind had run to jealousy. How exciting. Madam, give me his name and I will cut him through, the Margrave demanded. Come now, my noble wolf. You mistake me. I have no lover but my Christopher, my Margrave, my Baden Baden boy. You know my restless soul. I cannot stay in this tomb of a house all night. These English. I throw a nice little feast, and then that grousing Bedford points out a few nicks in his house. 
What is the cost of one or two windows to the favour you and I have shown that log of a man by abiding here? Christopher's head with its curly hair looked so affecting. She took it in her hands and began to stroke it. His voice softened. See, see, why do you always adventure without me? I brought you to England to win your heart. What revels we would have together, you said. Tonight I thought you ill. I needed you. Those dogs of creditors came here demanding pay. It is all over the city that I mean to abscond. Merchants are low and do not know the nature of one as high-born as you. But you are called to your own country, and I will help you escape. You can go by river, and then on to Dover. Your men can meet you there. Oh, kiss me, and we will to the nursery and bid goodbye to Edward Fortuna. Then we will re-tie the sheet, and out of the window we shall fly. His lips met hers. She said, To the water, let us go, dressed as mermen ready to jump into the sea. Do we not have green fins? Oh, or better, let us be the boy twins, Castor and Pollux. It hurts me so to see your beautiful breasts flatten so cruelly. Kiss them first, then you can bind them tenderly with your own hand. She undid her bodice. She knew he could never be angry with her. They had shared at least a thousand and one laughs, and how she loved his face. And he loved hers. Never was there a better match. They would consummate their love as only two of such talent were able, and then, disguised as handsome youths, they would escape into the night. When Cecilia waved goodbye to the Margrave from the water stairs, it crossed her mind that she could share the elixir of life with him, and they could be together throughout all eternity. Yet eternity was such a very long time. Why, in one hundred years it would be 1665, and then 1765. Who could imagine so many years? It was too much for her noble wolf. Best if she faced the challenges on her own. 1765. By then she could be the monarch of several countries. The art of alchemy was a mysterious thing. Cecilia has some big plans for the future. She sure does. But right now she has to forget about immortality and deal with a very mundane fact. She and her husband Christoph are in enormous debt. And this situation Cecilia finds herself in is based on history. The whole situation is documented in the state papers from 1565 to 1566. There are an amazing online resource, by the way, these state papers. They include all these letters between Cecil and the Queen and things that Cecilia said and different accounts of from ambassadors. They're really great. Invaluable. Yeah. Elizabeth granted Cecilia and Christoph a budget while they were in England. Which seems so weird to me. Why would Elizabeth pay Cecilia and the Margrave to stay in England in the first place? I don't know. Maybe that was pro forma from one royal to another. You know, hosting a foreign dignitary was an investment to encourage diplomatic relations, to build up alliances, and Sweden was an important country. But I can't see that it was worth the money for Elizabeth. After only a few months, she got very impatient with these two party people. Yes, Cecilia and Christoph spent way more than what the queen put in their budget. But because of their status, merchants were happy, well, to begin with anyway. 
to give them goods on credit. The same is true now. It's amazing how much debt high-profile people are able to amass before anyone calls in those loans. Everybody hates to say no to a celebrity, and the aristocracy of England at this time, they were the celebrities. And with their impressive royal titles, the princess and the margrave, they were able to keep running up debts for months. And then when the creditors heard that the margrave was going to leave London without paying, they freaked out. Yes, <laughs> and Cecilia is so brazen that she actually complains that these creditors, to whom she owes enormous amounts of money, are bothering her and harassing her. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. I guess so, but it's not surprising. Wait, what? <laughs> You're the one who's always you know, he's always surprised by people's absurd behavior. I know, but even I am not surprised by privilege and wealth going hand in hand and being unreasonable. And, you know, I see this situation clearly for once. Cecilia was an extremely entitled, beautiful young princess who assumed that it was Elizabeth's job as her hostess and as the Queen of England to make those debts go away. I doubt Cecilia thought for one second that it was her responsibility to pay or her fault for overspending. I mean, in her eyes, it was Elizabeth's fault for not being generous enough to her. Cecilia feels she's been badly treated, that she's been slighted, you know, not the other way around. But Elizabeth was not having it. She was not going to cover for Cecilia and Kristoff. Yeah, and she wasn't invested in showing she was a big spender. Yes. You feel like Henry VIII would have sucked it up just because he wouldn't want people to think he didn't have, uh, it. He didn't have it, right? But Elizabeth was like, no, I'm not wasting any more money on you guys. That was Elizabeth's way. She hated to waste money. And Cecilia's brother, King Eric, also declined to send cash. I imagine all these London merchants also assumed that Elizabeth would cover for these two big spender guests. But everyone misjudged Elizabeth's determination. So when no funds came, the creditors got extremely aggressive. I mean, as creditors do now, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. They call you constantly. They, you know, garnish your wages. But these creditors stood watch outside Bedford House. And there's actually an account of a butcher who climbed through the window of Cecilia's house demanding his money. I wonder if he got it, but he was desperate. You know, I don't blame them. Oh, I agree. And Cecilia's servants were constantly being waylaid in the street. And when the Margrave of Baden-Baden left London to deal with the political trouble at home, he really did have to disguise himself. According to state papers, he wore a fake beard and he had to travel by himself and have his retinue meet him because it was you know, he was going to make too much notice if he went with his whole band of people. No, we love that kind of historical detail. Well, the beard and the, you know, incognito worked because he did get out of England. And home to Baden-Baden. So good they named it twice. <laughs> so Baden means bath in modern German, but its older meaning was the plural baths. So it was the good old Romans who built baths all over Europe and in England too, hence the name of the city Bath. The Romans took advantage of these natural springs all over Europe. And Christoph is from Baden-Baden in Germany, so-called because there are many other Baden towns. So in other words, spa towns founded by the Romans. 
always began with Baden. So you have Baden Bay Zurich in Switzerland, Baden Bay Wren in Austria. So Baden Baden is basically bath bath. It's sort of like saying we're the original. Yeah. <laughs> we're the bath bath. If you're traveling in Western Europe, don't just ask for a train ticket to Baden because you could end up in the wrong Baden. Although I don't know if you could go wrong because they all look beautiful. You know, they're all in towns where they had these natural springs and you can't go wrong with a Roman spa town. They tend to be in really picturesque places. When the Roman Empire fell apart, the town of Baden-Baden did too. But then in the 12th century, it became the center of the Principality of Baden within the Holy Roman Empire. So when I first read that Christoph had to leave England to take care of military matters in his country, kind of thought it was he, it was made up, like that was his excuse for leaving. I, I was kind of surprised, I mean, because I kind of assumed Margrave was a kind of BS-y title and that Baden-Baden was some like boondock little place that couldn't possibly be important within the political upheaval of the Holy Roman Empire, but. I agree, but it turns out that the Margrave is an important title and that it's used for someone who is both the lord and the military commander of a principality. Right, which is very important. And, you know, I'm definitely guilty of having an English-centric worldview of the 16th century because of, you know, just my interest in the Tudors. But, of course, there was political upheaval going on all over Europe. And the same religious upheaval that was going on in England you know, when formerly Catholic Europe broke up into Protestant and Catholic territories was happening everywhere. I actually went to Baden-Baden. And you bought me a t-shirt. It was beautiful. Yes, it was a very nice t-shirt. I still wear it. No, I actually meant the town. (laughs) Baden-Baden is near the Black Forest of what is now Germany, and it borders on France. But Germany was not unified into one nation until 1871. Yeah, that's late. So until then, people's loyalties were to the Holy Roman Empire or to the individual rulers of the territories. And in the case where the individual ruler was loyal to the Holy Roman Empire, they were also loyal to the Holy Roman Empire and to the ruler of their territory. So it's, it's complicated. But the Holy Roman Empire had been going strong since 800 when Charlemagne was given the title. But with the rise of Protestantism in the 1500s, everything fell into chaos. That Luther really got things going in Mm -hmm. Europe. Do you think he had any idea how much war would ensue? I mean, hundreds of years, millions of lives lost, a shift in the entire power structure of the Western world. Do you think he would have kept those 95 theses to himself if he could foresee the results? No, (laughs) in a word. I think religious fanatics, and I mean of all religions, not just Christianity, think that the way people worship is more important than anything else. I'm not saying that they want people to die and for cities to be decimated and societies to be ruined, but they consider that the unfortunate collateral damage for something they consider bigger than this life on earth. Didn't Bertrand Russell say something like, I'm fanatical against fanatics? Well, I agree with that. Well, because it's the same for 
political extremists. Mm -hmm. They think their policies are worth killing people for. It's not just religion that sets people against each other. No, absolutely not. But in the West, the conflicts of the 16th and 17th centuries were, superficially anyway, about religion, because really all conflicts are about power, but they were superficially about religion. And in 1555, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V made an attempt to temper this turmoil with the Augsburg Peace. So the new policy would be whose realm, his religion. In other words, the ruler would decide the religion of his country and his people. Which was a pretty big concession by the Holy Roman Emperor to allow that kind of independence. I think that Charles was just driven to it because the situation was too explosive. You know, for some very fanatical Catholics, the decision to tolerate people they considered heretics in the Holy Roman Empire must have been intolerable. Charles weakened his support among some people with his attempt at being pragmatic. Right, because the idea was that the Protestant states and the Catholic states would coexist. Of course, if you were in one of the Catholic states and you were a Protestant or something else, a Jewish person or a Muslim person, for instance, you were seriously out of luck. At the governmental level, the religious friction continued, of course, as rulers tried to coerce lesser rulers to take their religion, and people kept killing each other, or in cases like in England, where, you know, Edward VI was Protestant, then Mary returned the, the country to Catholicism, then Elizabeth sort of found the Anglican Church. So there were a lot of cycles with different rulers, yes. and a lot of upheaval. Charles V saw this as kind of a way to make things more stable, but actually in some ways the country could flip-flop back and forth between different religions. Anyway, Cecilia and the Margrave were playing the diplomatic game. Sure. Sweden was at this time a Protestant country, but Baden was Catholic, and Christoph was working to secure the favor of King Philip of Spain. And we know this because our old friend, the Bishop Guzman de Silva, wrote often of the couple to his master, King Philip, assuring him of their loyalty to Spain, even though they were being hosted by the Protestant Queen Elizabeth. And she was or was not paying their bills. Right. <laughs> and before he married Cecilia, Christoph also fought in the Spanish campaigns in the Netherlands. And I seem to remember from some correspondence that Guzman arranged for Cecilia and Christoph to get a loan from Philip. I'm sure they did. And probably they wanted to keep it from Elizabeth because they really did try to borrow from everyone. Christoph's family was closely connected to the Spanish because his father, Bernard, was raised in the court of the Holy Roman Emperor and was friends with his son, Philip, who then became the King of Spain. It's a tight circle of the nobility and they all know each other because they would often go to each other's countries to be brought up. It was part of the sort of education, right? The international education. Yes, and the Margraves were a kind of ruling noble in a way, actually, because they controlled what we would more or less consider a border region. And they also assembled, I don't want to say army exactly. Well, because army isn't completely correct. Our army makes you think of a country's government training and paying a group of, at this time anyway, only men that were ever at the ready and could be deployed whenever the king thought he needed them for a campaign. 
whereas the Margraves assembled bands of men to fight on behalf of the sovereign that they, the Margrave, were supporting. And since the Margraves were on borders, they could sometimes go with one sovereign in one conflict and another sovereign in another conflict. It, it wasn't so much to do with nationality as fighting for the individual leader of your band or your group of soldiers. Right, and being a soldier could be a fairly good job whomever you were fighting for. It could be if you were at a certain level, but it always came with the possibility of being killed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, and some people didn't want to fight, so sometimes soldiers were conscripted. It was actually Eric of Sweden, grandfather to our own wacky princess Cecilia, who began the whole idea of conscription. I'm sure it wasn't very popular when it started. No. I'd be interested to study that. And in many countries, they forced men who were jailed to fight, which some people might have felt was a better option because at least they got their freedom at the end. But in England, of course, they would take the Irish prisoners to fight on the continent. And considering the enmity between the Irish and the English, that seems very ill-advised to me. Once you get everyone on the battlefield and they're fighting a single enemy, they just want to win and survive, I think. And go home. And go yeah. home. But in most countries, lords still raised troops through a kind of feudal mechanism. So historically, part of the role of the nobility was when the king called for defense, the nobles would show up with their people, which they called their retinues. Their people, of course, were tenants on the nobles' land. Basically, they were farmers, and they had no choice in the matter. They couldn't really say, no, you know, Mr. Noble, I'm not coming with you, because they were dependents. Yes, Sir Robert Dudley raised 500 men for Elizabeth in 1585 by telling his tenants that their leases obliged them to serve. Mm -hmm. So the more men you could raise showed your power as a noble and it impressed the queen who needed the troops and then she would grant you more land because you had provided the troops and then you could lease that land to tenants and then you could make them fight on your behalf right so then is now the rich got richer but they knew that men who volunteered even though some men were conscripted or they were brought in by this feudal method they knew that men who volunteered and who were not conscripted or threatened were absolutely better soldiers than men who were forced to serve. Yes, true. And they had some very practical ways to get volunteers. So a commissioned officer would receive royal permission that allowed him to appoint non-commissioned officers. Then these non-commissioned officers would advertise and make war seemed seem adventurous and terrific to entice men to enlist with promises of lots of alcohol and bounties at the end of cam the campaign and, um, you know, and honor and all these things that people still think about when they think about the military. Then is now. It's like the highly produced dramatic TV ads for the U.S. Marines with all that exciting technology. Yeah, I mean, all depictions of the military, from the images of battles on a Greek vase to the ad for, you know, the few, the proud, the Marines, with all that stirring music and soaring fighter jets, it 
It's all a way to sell this warrior life and make people feel like joining the military is a noble enterprise. In the 16th century, what was even better than for the soldier to be recruited by a commissioned officer was to be a member of what was called a contract group. And these were groups of soldiers who demanded to be paid upfront because they did something specific and desirable. So they were Swiss pikemen or German pistoleteers or they were known for some other excellence. And that gave them bargaining power. And most countries used these fighters, even though they were not concerned with the cause of the battle or particularly loyal to any specific monarch. When you talk to people who've actually been in the military, what they talk about when they actually get out to the battlefield is their sense of responsibility to their fellow soldiers. They hardly ever talk about the actual cause. So I think even though we think now we have these big bad, you know, these big causes, I think it's still the same. When you, when you get out there, you're really just trying to keep your friend alive. These contract soldiers were paid up front, which was better for them, and the mercenary soldier was paid at the end of the campaign. So it was much better to be a contract soldier because kings ran out of money all the time. And, you know, the soldiers were the last people to be paid, of course, because they were the lowest on the, on the rank, of the ranks. Sure. And the group of contract soldiers had a leader who was called the general contractor, <laughs> who ran the troop and also made the deals. Because he was a general and a contractor. That's funny. <laughs> the general contractor was really an entrepreneur. And this became very popular in the 16th and 17th centuries as a way to enrich yourself. Right, because it sounds like the general contractor didn't actually have to fight. And the thing is, these contractors, they did have to have skills. They had to excel at logistics because they employed 50,000 to 150,000 men. Which is a lot. Which is a lot. I mean, that must have been a group of contractors because one person couldn't possibly manage 150,000 men on his own. No. No, yeah. So they had to pay them, and they had to give them food. They had to get them munitions, equipment, tents. Yeah, so they needed a network of suppliers, and they also needed bankers to invest and put the money up front so they could pay these people in advance. I read that the biggest forces had stakeholders, mm -hmm. and they were more or less what people would consider venture capitalists. It was a strong form of employment. Every soldier made some money, but if you were a specialist or, of course, an officer, of course you made the most, just like now. I mean, there were f at least 14 distinct pay grades. Of course, it wasn't all smooth, however great the general contractor was. And many times, soldiers weren't paid, and then they destroyed and stole as much as they could from whomever they could, from the local population, and it was actually terribly violent. Horrible. And, you know, that still happens, unfortunately. Mm. But even if they were paid on time, you know, soldiers were still horribly violent. Well, if they were there to enrich themselves, then they would just take whatever was worth something. Blackjack is a soldier, and in history, he was, in fact, a famous soldier, as we've said before. But remember, again, there was no permanent standing army in England at this time. So Blackjack would be free to go and fight in different campaigns. There wasn't a, a English army until Oliver Cromwell formed his new model army in the 17th century. So that's why Blackjack is considering going with 
the Margrave of Baden-Baden, you know, to be paid so he could fight in this campaign. Historically, Blackjack was close to Elizabeth Tudor. She favored his family, the Norries, both for their loyalty to her and also for their loyal loyalty to her mother. The Norries were generational supporters. Right. Blackjack's great-uncle attended Elizabeth as a guardian when she was young, and his mother, who Elizabeth named Black Crow because of her hair, was also a friend of Elizabeth's. And Elizabeth stayed at the Norris's home, Yattenton Castle, when she was on her way to Woodstock to be imprisoned by her sister Mary. And I hope they gave her some pep talks <laughs> and some, some reassurance and some good food yes, some before good... she went into the tower. And when Anne Boleyn visited Yattenton Castle, she supposedly dropped her handkerchief. And the story is that Henry Norris picked it up, and that was used as evidence that they had had an affair. Wait, wasn't that the plot of Othello? It was indeed. (laughs) And then Shakespeare made good use of it. He was one of the five men who was beheaded in the wake of Anne's downfall. Boy, those handkerchiefs. Not Shakespeare. (laughs) Those handkerchiefs are dangerous things. And Henry Norris had been very close to Henry VIII, but of course that didn't save him in the end. Royal involvement was always a mixed bag, and it certainly was for the Norris family. Blackjack got his nickname because he had the same black hair as his mother had. Elizabeth and his troops called him Blackjack, and he, he had five brothers. There were five Norris brothers, and some historical sources say he was the eldest of the brothers. Some say his brother William was the heir. You know, some of the birth dates are a little squidgy, but we decided that for our story, William was the heir and Blackjack was the second son. And Blackjack was a successful soldier in virtually every war of the period. He was in the wars of religion in France and in Flanders. He was there during the Eighty Years' War while the Dutch were struggling to separate from from Spain and in the undeclared Anglo-Spanish War that dragged on for 20 years. There were plenty of places to fight. But above all, he was known for his involvement in the Tudor conquest of Ireland, which was just extremely ugly. Yes, incredibly ugly and terrible. The Tudor period is often called the early modern period because it's a time of huge transition from the purely medieval world into a period that set the stage for our modern world. And of course that's true with weapons. So in battles, when Blackjack goes into war, they're still using lots of, you know, shall I call them like classic weapons, longbows, daggers, battle axes, different types of swords, pole axes, halberds, and spears. But gunpowder weapons were coming into their own. So more muskets, matchlocks, flintlocks, and cannons were also used. Right, but those weapons at this time were still pretty inefficient. So the time between firing each shot could be up to a minute mm-hmm. uh, with loading the powder. And a, and a minute, you know, is a long and dangerous time for a vulnerable soldier to be on the battlefield unarmed. And the firearms were extremely heavy. So it, there was still limited use on the battlefield of these firearms. Then is now. War is a dangerous business, but the Margrave of Baden-Baden is off to do his duty. And Blackjack has decided to skip this skirmish and stay in England. And Philomena is pretty pleased about that, (laughs) but she won't give Blackjack the satisfaction of seeming so. Oh, the (laughs) battlefield of love. Yes. (laughs) Perhaps much less dangerous, but just as complicated. 
And Cecilia will have to comfort herself with dreams of her immortality while her badden, badden boy, Christophe, is away. Yes, and in the next episode, we'll be using our Tudor time machine to return to the court of Henry VIII. We're going to peek in on Anne Boleyn and Thomas Wyatt. And on a rather famous event that our Tudor-minded folks may be familiar with. Right, so leave us a comment on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. We love hearing from you. We really appreciate your support. All our gratitude for listening. And listen in next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. (laughs) 